1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13 to verse 20. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. We'll finish with 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And everybody said, amen. Have a seat. When I uh, develop sermons, what I, what I like to do is I like to read through the passage eight times, prayerfully read through it, then I take a legal pad and I write down thoughts, trying to figure out the theme of the verses we're going through. I try to Figure out what is the intent of the author, who is the audience, and what does he want the audience to know. And I will be honest with you, this week, starting in verse 13, it was one of those passages that just did not stick. It's like, it sort of was like a watercolor on, painting watercolor on plastic. It just dripped off my brain. I, like, if, as I read it, did any of it really stick with you? Like, we'd say, oh, maybe be holy as I am holy. But everything else kind of, it's so jam-packed. He's got so much stuff jam-packed, it's almost incredible how much he stuffs in nine verses. As I was thinking about who he's writing to, Peter was writing to the exiled churches, people that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. We talked about that last week. People in the churches, some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Jews had the long history of God's work. Gentiles just came to understand, so he's writing to a diverse audience. That's another problem for a pastor. How do I speak to people who have been saved for 30 years and just got saved last week? How do you take a passage and make it relevant? You know, my question always is, go ahead, the first one is, how do I help everyone understand something that seems so complex? Well, I was reading this. There's also hints that he's talking a lot about time and epics and periods. And really what he's telling here is a story of history, believe it or not. It's a five-part story of history. And I'm going to call this Peter's plot line. You could say this is his gospel story, but Peter's going to map out for us the story where you are involved. And it really matters where you're at in the story. For instance... Let's say you're watching a football game. Most of you know how to play football, right? Most of you. Who has no idea how to play football? All right, I'm not talking to you. Everybody else I'm talking to. Okay, so those of you who know football, let's say it's 4th and 12. What do I do if it's 4th and 12? Punt. What if it's go for it? Who said go for it? 
Okay, so Derek is the only one that gets it because there's one minute left. You're down by seven. You better go for it, and it's Super Bowl. So it matters where you're at in the story. He is writing to people in a very, what I would say, a very important part of the story, and you're going to see what it is. But to do that, i got to give you the plot line. And the plot begins all the way back here. I want this stage. This stage is going to be time. Time as you know it. This is, represents the world that we live in, world we breathe in, where there's the physicality of the world. I'm going to start, though, before the world, before time began. And we're going to say this represents eternity in here. Can you guys still hear me? Because I can't hear anything in here. You can't. Oh, come on, Tyler. You can hear me. Raise your hand if you can hear me. Dean really looks good today. So you can hear me? Okay, so 1 Peter, look at verse 20. 1 Peter 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Who was foreknown? What does that mean before the foundation of the world? We're going to call this area the waters before time or eternity. It's interesting in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, it said God moved on the waters of the earth. But the idea is that before anything began, God in eternity had this whole thing planned out. Specifically, what he's talking about, and we'll get to this in a little bit, is this. This, I'm going to call Ransom Hill. But he had this foreknown before the foundation world. Look at verse 20 again. He was, meaning Jesus was foreknown before the foundation world, he was manifest in these last times for you. See how he's using the idea of foreknown in time? He uses a lot of time. What he's saying is the death of Christ, this, the crucifixion of Christ, was planned in eternity. Why would God plan to kill his son before anybody was ever born, before anybody ever sinned, why would God do that? I believe for a couple reasons. I have on here some verses. John 1, 1 and 2 talks about Jesus' preexistence. He's eternal himself. It says, in the beginning was the Word. So we can say the beginning represents in here. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. So in the beginning, Jesus was with the Father, planning this whole thing out. And then you have Isaiah 44, 7, 8 says, what other God can make predictions and they come true? I can. And so what God did, before you even get to here, in Genesis, very first book, he said that Satan is going to bruise his heel, but the son of Mary, or the son of the woman, is going to crush his head. That was the very beginning. Then you have about Isaiah 53. We'll talk about it 700 years before that happened. He said that a man is going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. He won't open his mouth. Then you get Micah. Micah is another prophet that said the king is going to be born in a city called Bethlehem. He predicted it to prove he's God. But there's one other reason. I want you to go to Isaiah. This is amazing to me. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and 53 are probably the most known messianic verses in the Old Testament. Messianic means verses about the Messiah, predictions of the Messiah. Messiah means coming king, specifically his death, which we'll talk about in a little bit. 
Why did he do this? So Isaiah 52, look at verse 6. He says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So the, his name is who he is. In the Old Testament, a name was who the person is. He planned all of this so that you will know who he is. This is him. This is God. This is God's heart, his dead son. What in the world is that? I'll tell you what that is. You know, a God who can do everything is compelling, but a God who dies for you grabs your heart. It's called evangelical humility. There's what's called judicial humility. If you're a little kid and you're two years old and you don't do what I say, I can grab you by the neck and say, listen to me. He'll listen to me, but I won't win his heart. But if that two-year-old kid keeps spitting in my face and I say, don't do that, and that two-year-old kid keeps hurting the father and then one day he realizes, you know, the father could crush me, but he doesn't. He actually forgives me. That wins your heart. Do you know without us sinning without Jesus dying for us, we really wouldn't know God. Like really know God. Because God is God wants to be known as long suffering, patient, and kind. So why did he plan this? So we could see the most beautiful part of him, his mercy. It's gorgeous. It's why I love him. So that's the beginning of the story. Let's go back to first Peter. That's why he planned it, so you can know him. Bill, does that make sense? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. When Bill gives a thumbs up, it means copacetic, man. It's copacetic. He's a 70s kid. All right, anyhow. So now we go to part two. Part two we find in verse 14. Let me read it, and then let me explain it. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, pas- the passions of your former ignorance. So, What happened is after Adam fell, time began, and people are born into this, I'm going to call it this forest, this forest of ignorance. And imagine this forest is like that forest on the Wizard of Oz that grabs you, and you're lost in there. It's dark in there. People are ignorant in there. And so it looks like this. I'm going to call this the forest of ignorance. Go to the next slide. It looks creepy. It's it's cloudy. It's dark. And you see that big, it's like a big mansion back there, but if you notice that mansion's empty. It's It's useless. That's what this world is like. It's people who are kind of lost, and they build things that do not last. They end up empty. And so the way that you can describe people in here is look what it says in verse 14. It says they were conformed to pa- their passions. So the people were this. Go ahead and hit that. They were driven mad by their desires. Their desires is what led them. Whatever they saw, whatever they wanted, whatever they felt, they just did it because it's about me in the forest. I'm all that matters. Go to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. It describes it well. Chapter 4. 1 Peter, verse 3. And he's talking about the forest of ignorance. And ignorance, by the way, doesn't mean without knowledge. It means I don't want knowledge. 
It's volitional idiocy. I'm an idiot by choice. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality. So sensuality is what brings me pleasure. Could be looking at a human form, or it could be drinking a lot, or it could be whatever makes me happy. That's sensuality. Passions, that's what I want. Drunkenness. Orgies. Drinking parties. Lawless idolatry, meaning nobody's going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in the same forest of ignorance or flood of debauchery and they malign you. So the first thing you can say is people who live in the forest, they are driven mad by their desires. I got to have it. Give it to me. And the second thing we find in verse 18, 1 Peter 1.18. This is an interesting phrase. Knowing that you were ransomed from, and here it is, this is describing the force of ignorance, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What does that mean? Your forefathers have, they've, they've had a pattern of living. They passed down traditions for you. They passed down ways to live, but they're empty. They're like that mansion. They're built up by them, but there's nothing inside and these feudal ways usually are religion, traditions, family. That's my family name. The maddest my dad really ever got with me is I, I talk a lot about my dad, and I appreciate you guys. You don't mind the stories of my dad, but th- one of the reasons I love my dad is my dad just was honest all the time. And he, if he's mad, you knew he's mad, but he's scary when he got mad. And one time we had a conversation. It was after I became a Christian. We're sitting at the table. I just still remember it because it was, you know, tense. The, the air would spark kind of. And he said, Chris, I got a question for you. I said, yeah, what is it, Dad? He goes, when you have kids, are you going to send them the same private schools that I sent you? And I went to private religious schools that in my mind taught a bad theology. And I said, no, Dad. I am not. What? You are not going to send your kids in the same kind of tradition you were raised? No. Oh, so what you're saying is I was a waste of time what I did for you. All of those years I sent you and your brother and sisters, so I just wasted my time. Dad, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. Dad, I didn't say that. And he got up and he stormed out of the house. My mom's washing dishes, and she looked back at me and she said, That was scary. You know, it was kind of. But the reason why is some people have been raised in this tradition, and you don't change. You don't change because a lot of some eth- ethnic groups, they will, they will define their ethnic group by their religion or by their traditions. Listen to what one commentator said about this feudal, feudal um Inheritance of the forefathers. The writer says, It is difficult to exaggerate the seriousness of Peter's claims. 
To break from one's ancestral religion was to invite disaster in the form of recrimination from the gods that you scorned and invited contempt from your relatives for undermining the fabric of society. Hey, if you leave, you're going to leave what we raised you in? Why do you think Jesus said, you know what, following me sometimes? You're going to hate your mother, brother, sister. It's kind of scary. So this is the forest of ignorance. And then we're led to verse 20. And watch how it's written. Actually, let's read it from 18 to 20, 1 Peter. So then, really to get to this other side with who he's writing to, you can't just walk around. You've got to go up a hill. And I'm calling it Ransom Hill, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, meaning you weren't rescued out of this forest with money, with normal human currency, then how was I rescued? Verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. This is weird standing up here like this. Like, I feel really weird. Jesus did it naked on a cross. And people are like, naked? Jesus was utterly humiliated for you. Utterly. To buy you out of that forest. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, verse 20, he was foreknown. We talked about that. Really, this part is what he's foreknown about before the foundation world was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Theologians will say at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the clock to the end of the world began. This is the start of the last days. But his blood flows only this way. You, I want you to remember that later, but just on my illustration, his blood only flows down the hill this way. Three things about this ransom hill. Ransom means to free somebody, because judgment's coming on this forest, to free them. Number one, it required lamb's blood. Number two, it was a purchase. It was a buying. And number three, it's personal. So you could say it's lamb's blood payment for you. Let's talk about lamb's blood. Lamb's blood in the Old Testament. And this is where Peter's writing to a degree to the Jews. Every time a person was forgiven, they had to go to the temple. And to go to the temple, they'd bring a little lamb or they'd bring a bull. But they had to bring one that was without spot, without blemish. It had to be perfect. Why? Because the priest would put his head on the lamb representing the people. The priest represented people, the intermediary between God and man. People are sinful. He put his hand on a spotless lamb, and the idea is then he'd cut the lamb's throat. The idea is that it's a trade. Sin goes to the lamb. Purity goes to the priest or the people. And the blood showed that it was death. He paid that price. Our lamb, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God has made him who knew no sin, God has made him who knew no sin uh, to give us the righteousness of God. So through him, we 
have been made righteous. So we are no longer ignorant. We've been clean. And it's a purchase. That blood is the only thing that could buy you. Good works, good family. You've got to go up the hill only through, you can only go through here through death. That's it. And then the final thing, look at the last two words in verse 20. Look at the last two words in verse 20. I love it. It says, for you, for you, it's singular, meaning you won't get to this new other side because your grandma did. You won't get there because your mom did. You have to go there personally. That means you have to accept this payment for you. It's personal. That's why we call it personal salvation. So this ransom hill, then when I accept, then I come down here, and this is who Peter's really writing to. This is the village, I'm going to call it the strange village. Remember last week we said Christians are strange? We're exiles. We have been pulled out of the world. We've been made into a new community. Imagine this village. I like to imagine it's kind of like a, TJ, I like to imagine it kind of like the Shire a little bit, you know. You've got those little huts and stuff, and they've got little smitties where you can sharpen your sword. But over here, warriors are being prepared for battle. We are being prepared to go back around. There's a little path you can go back around to go on mission to get people out of here and get them to the hill. But this describes what you're supposed to be like starting in verse 13. Look what it says. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Okay, so this is first talking about the kind of mind and mental state you're supposed to have. It's a state of a, of a warrior or a saint. A saint is a Christian soldier. So you could say it like this. It's a hope-filled saint because verse 13 says we do this because of the grace that will be brought to you, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what those first two words mean. Where it says prepare your mind for action. The actual Greek says gird up, your, gird up your loins. And the idea is if I was an Old Testament warrior, I'd wear cloaks everywhere. But when I went into the battle, I'd take that cloak and I'd wrap it up, expose my legs, take a belt, and I'd put my belt across and I'd gird up my loins so now I can run and fight and kick like, hiya, like that. But my loins are girded up, which means I'm ready for battle. The idea is we have to start living differently. We have to take it serious, be ready. That's why he uses the phrase sober-minded. And you gird up your loins with truth. That's why, if you go to Ephesians, when we fight the battle, you fight with the belt of truth. Truth. You start thinking. You're not a robot. You're not an idiot anymore. You're not a purposely ignorant person. And then it says sober-minded. And sober often is translated as a serious-minded person. But what is sober bring to your mind. What sober brings to my mind, one writer says this, the idea is you're no longer intoxicated. Intoxicated people, they'll go to the bar at 10 in the morning, they'll have a, a bowl of peanuts, the game will be on. It's a good day if it's a doubleheader. Sit at the bar, pop those peanuts, keep drinking, give me another one, give me another one. 
And you know what? They don't care about anything but sitting there doing nothing. Sober-minded means I no longer am careless. I, I no longer li- I'm no longer stuck in here. I now care about life. It matters. This, this preordained purpose, and I'm included, that means I'm important. My life's important. I start thinking the way I should think, and I should be sober-minded because he died for me. You see what I mean? When you understand the story, when you understand it's fourth and 12 with a minute left, I don't punt. I live. I live because it really matters. So the first thing is we're hope-filled saints. Secondly, this is amazing. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, keeps using this idea of children, Verse 15, he who called you is holy, so be holy. Verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then verse 17, we call on the Father. So here's the second thing. If, if it says we're children, and then in verse 17 it says we have a Father, we are holy because our dad is holy. So what he's saying here is we're holy because we're children. Children always should resemble the parents. In the, old, in the old times, they'd have apprenticeships where the son would learn his dad's trade and he would learn to do the will that his father's been doing. That's why when Jesus came, Jesus said, I don't do what I want to do, I do what the father, I always do the will of the father. You should, if you've been purchased, you have become a child, and if you are a child, you should start looking like your dad. I, like, seriously, I really feel bad for my sons. I really feel bad for them. I tell my son, Joseph, every other day, don't I, Ginger? I really feel bad for you. You look just like me. It's terrible. He has that same look. I feel bad for him because he's my son. My son, Gio, he plays football. One of the reasons why is when he's two years old, Derek, I bought him this football. You might remember this football when you throw it. It'd play the Ohio State theme song. Do you remember that football? And I'd show Derek. I'd say, Derek, come here. And then Gio would run through the room, and I'd throw him the football and he'd catch it and he'd dive into the couch because that's what I like. And he started liking it and he just bought a sweatshirt with Ohio State on it because he wanted it. But why? Because he's my son. It's weird. My oldest daughter, Ginger, she thinks like me. I feel really bad for her. I tell really bad jokes. She goes to work tells the same stupid jokes. Like, what? where did you learn these jokes? Here's a dumb joke. What did a guy say who fell in the three holes? Well, well, well. See, and she says that at work. And then my youngest daughter, Jasmine, who's young, you know what she watches? She watches Twilight Zone with me. She's already messed up. It's crazy. But you become like your parent. Are you becoming holy? Is God your dad? We don't become, like, we don't become holy because, man, they'll get mad at me at church if I don't. Mm-mm. I'll, I'll lose my salvation if I'm, not holy. Like we often teach it like that. Be holy as God is holy. No, you're holy because your dad is. You know what holy means? Holy means I'm no longer distracted by everything like I was in that forest. Holy means I'm single-minded to do the will of the Father. I want what God wants. I'm set apart, called by him to be single-minded, pure, so he can use me. That's what it means. 
Now we go to something that is not seen by the naked eye, but we find it in verse 17. So we, went, we started at the beginning, before the waters, before time. We get through the forest. We go up Ransom Hill, have to stop there. Then you go down where the blood flows, and now you're in this new strange village full of strangers in exile. But there's something right here. You don't see it, and it's verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout, and here it is, the time of your exile. That word, the time, is where we get the word chronology or chronos. Time means a period of time. It will end. So our exile is only for a time. And so what we have here is a lot of us live with this, there's this cloud right here that is hiding something over here, but we don't see the cloud. We think this is all there is. We're going to land, we're going to be here forever. But this cloud, look at what this cloud is. Look what it says. Here's how James describes it. Here's how he describes time. What is your life? You're missed. You're missed. That appears for a little time. I'm not in this village that long. This mist will disappear. And many of us don't recognize that. We think we're kind of permanent. How to tell if you're blinded to the cloud? You don't have much urgency in life. You're, you have a desire for luxury. You focus on your vanity and you have a demand for leisure. No urgency. Desire for luxury. Focus on vanity and demand for leisure. Last week, one of my sons, we were at dinner and we were talking and one of my sons asked me his question. He said, Dad, what do you think of retirement? You know, like when people retire and they go golfing every day. Let's go to the next thing. <laughs> I won't talk about that. Let's go to the last thing. But we're missed. We're missed. We're missed. What's behind the mist? It's in verse 13. What's behind the mist? Verse 13. Quiet, we haven't got there. Who let that out? Was it Darcy again? Darcy. It's as if you read the Bible or something. What's going on? Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So that means we need to be different people in this village and be sober-minded. Why? Because of the hope of what? The grace that's going to be brought to us When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So revelation means when the curtains are open. You could say when the cloud finally disappears. Somebody's probably standing there right like this. Just, just waiting. He's got a crown on. I've said, I might have, you might have heard this before, but here's how I picture it. I imagine this, there's a barn. There's a barn right here. Big red barn. And leading into a barn is a, is a uh, servant who's got a rope tied to a donkey that he's, that's leading this donkey into the barn because the donkey already did his job. 
There's another servant in a stable over here saddling a giant white stallion because he's getting ready because it's his turn. Who's the stallion? The stallion is Revelations 19 says the Messiah is going to mount him and his, he's going to be girded for truth and righteousness sake and he's going to appear in a flash in the twinkling of an eye. And because of that, we need to be ready. That's the point. Look at what Jesus says in John 17. I love this. I love this. Like you could ask it like this. What does Jesus really want? I think Jesus wants people saved, absolutely. Um, But he he, uh, shows his cards in one verse in 17. 24. We call this the high priestly prayer. Right before Jesus died, he's praying to the Father. This is probably what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 24, listen to what he says. It's incredible. Father, I desire, that means this is what I want, that they also, who are they? The ones you've given to me. That's these people who are in this village that the blood came to, those you've given me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. He wants to be with us. But look at this part. To be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, but I want them to see what I'm really like. When he says to see my glory, I don't think we have any idea what, what he's talking about. I think we are so used to Jesus being belittled, his name used a swear word, we don't think he answers prayer, where is he? We kind of, we I think we have so diminished Jesus, we don't really care about him. The way you can tell is sometimes you'll go to Bible conferences, they care more about talking about themselves than they care about the person of Christ. He's amazing. Look at 2 Thessalonians. This is the scariest verse to me. I don't like this verse. I don't. I really don't. But it's in the Bible and you've got to read it because it's all about this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And he's talking to Christians in the church who are going through suffering for being Christians. Verse 5. This is evidence of the right. 2 Thessalonians is after Colossians. I want you, I'm taking my time, I want you to see this for yourself because this isn't from my mouth. This is evidence chapter 1, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So what he's talking about is judgment on the people in the forest. That's what he's talking about. Now verse 7. It gets heavy. It gets really heavy. And a grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed, remember the revelation, when the Lord Jesus, the curtains come out and he comes out, that's what it means, that's what revealed means. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. As you know in the Old Testament, one angel could kill 70,000 people. One. Stop on that a second. Verse 8. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Ignorance means without knowledge. Those who do not know God and ignorant people don't want to know God and they do their own thing because they are going after their own desires. Who is, what is he going to do? Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Verse 10, and he comes, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, that means when we see him, we're, look what it says, we'll, he'll be marveled. He'll be marveled at among all those who believed. He will be marveled at. You know what marveled means? And I, I, this always amazes me. Marveled means I really didn't get it when I was alive. I will see him and I'll go, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no idea he was this amazing. So, two questions on this plot line. Number one, where do you live? Do you live in the forest or the village? Where do you live? Do you live in the forest or the village? You're like, well, how do I know? It's really easy. I described it for you. Are you a person that always chases your desires and always wants all the attention? And you are, you, it says there's two descriptions of people like this in the Bible. One is it says you're a chaser after the wind. You're a trend follower, sniffer. What is everything? I need to know the new trends. Or you are somebody that's like on the waves of the sea that, man, you're up and down. You're depressed. You're never even keel. Are you a forest dweller or are you over here where you are a saint? A saint is strong and prepared and ready. And you're a child. You resemble the Father. People notice, they, they notice Jesus in you. So which, are you in a forest or are you in the... Uh, village. And remember, there's only one way to get to the village. You've got to climb the hill. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, what must, the, what are, what must be the works that I have to do to inherit eternal life. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And then you go down the hill, and now it's time to live. So the final question is, are you ready for the reveal? 
Are you ready for him to be revealed? And there's one word that's used in Peter. It's the word fear. We should fear that day. People don't like to use that word, but it's a very, uh, it just means that it, when he comes back, um, it's serious, I guess you could say. People are like, yeah, but, what, but I'm saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm, we're going to be called to account. So are you ready? 